where we're going, but see where we've been. And sometimes it's a lot more fun just to take a little time and look and see where we've been than it is to try to decide where we're going. That's why when you get home from a nice trip, you, all, you look forward to getting your pictures. And uh, you get together with the people that went on the trip and slides, you know, and pictures, and we share those around, pass them around. And we remember those places where we've been. And that's a lot of fun. It is important from time to time to take a little time to see where we've been. That's what we need to do tonight, just briefly. Because since we came, since we have come to the end of Romans 8, the eighth chapter, that concludes a major section in the book of Romans and it gives us an opportunity to see where we've been. We know that verses 1 through 17 of chapter 1 is a prologue. It's an introduction to the book. And in this introduction, he establishes the theme of the book of Romans, the righteousness of God. So in the very beginning of the prologue, in the beginning of the book, in the prologue, he introduces what Romans is about. It's about God's righteousness. The last part of chapter one through chapter three, he pictures man in his depravity. Because the best way to really see the beauty of the righteousness of God is to set that beauty of God's righteousness against this terrible backdrop of what man is. And from what, from the pit from which he's rescued. And so chapters, the end of chapter one and chapters two and three describe man in this horrible condition of his sin, his lostness, he's depraved, it's, it's, it's dark, it's hopeless. What a picture of man in, verse, in chapters two and three. He comes to chapter four, in chapter four, God just holds out his hand to, to man and offers his righteousness and says in essence, son, I'll give you my righteousness if you'll take it by faith. Here it is, I'll give it to you. In chapter five, he begins with this statement, having then been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he shows all the way through chapter five how God's righteousness is credited to man and the wonder of that. And then chapter six through eight, God begins to work on his children. If chapters one through five deal with salvation, chapters six through eight deal with sanctification. And he begins to show how that God wants to develop character in the life of the saved. And this character is the character that his own son possesses. And he shows how that even in the circumstances of life, God is working those things together to accomplish the character of Jesus Christ in the life of every Christian, it's called sanctification. I went into the um, donut place the other day and on my usual Friday morning after we have a little prayer meeting, why some of us guys go, get, go down and drink a little coffee and hobnob with the rest of the world, you know, the non-prayers. <laughs> and when I went in this donut shop, this guy called me and said, come over here and sit over here, sit down, I'm gonna tell you something, I'm gonna talk to you a minute. I said, well, I'm with these other guys, I don't care, I just wanna talk to you a minute. 
So I sat down with, with him, and this is what he said. He said, you're the only Baptist preacher that preaches on sanctification. He said, I want to pat you on the back. Of course, he, he was something else, but he said, you're the only Baptist preacher I've ever heard preach in a Baptist church on sanctification. Really turned him on. Well, it's there, you know. So that if there is salvation, there is sanctification, and that's what chapter 6 through 8 do, do, does. It describes sanctification, the developing of the Christ-like character. And when he gets to the end of chapter 8, he ends it with this marvelous statement, nothing shall separate us from the love of God. Now, if you will do with me, if you'll just stop at chapter 8 and just jump over to chapter 12, and look how chapter 12 starts. It says in chapter 12, I beg you, I beseech you, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And that's the natural way that should happen. I mean, if you talk about how, to, how a person is saved, and then you go to sanctification, which means to be set apart, then the next thing you would want to deal with is service. So the natural progress is that you're saved and sanctified, and now you're serving God. The only problem is that you don't go from chapter 8 to chapter 12. In between chapter 8 and chapter 12 are chapters 9, 10, and 11. Now that's the problem, see. So what we do is we gotta go back and see what chapters 9, 10, and 11 have to say. Now notice what he says in verse one of chapter nine. I'm telling the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Does that seem a little strange to you? That he just comes out of the marvelous victorious, triumphant chapter eight and begins chapter nine with how bad he feels, how great sorrow that he has. Look at verse three. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ. Now what's strange about that to you? Well, the fact is he ends chapter eight with a shout of victory that nothing separates us from Christ and then he starts in chapter nine saying that he wishes he were separated from Christ. For his brethren's sake. If it, could, if it would do anything, if it would help his brethren, the Jew, he said, I'd be, I'd be pleased to live my eternity separated from Christ. Amazing, amazing statement. Now you know what's in Paul's heart? What you seldom ever think of, the Jew is on his heart. And he looks around in the Roman church and the Jew is not there. And he looks around in the body of Christ and he finds no Jews, no Jewish brethren there. And it's breaking his heart. Why is the Jew absent? That's what he deals with in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Now, we don't get what we're gonna to do tonight by osmosis. As a matter of fact, we're just gonna do an overview. It's gonna take two other sermons to finish it. That'll give you a little encouragement. But I wanna say up front, this thing, I need you to write this down somewhere on your, piece, your sheet of paper. This thing that, 
that, that it's basic to what we're going to deal with in, 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 in the place that the Jew has in God's plan. Here's the statement. God's plan for the Jew is consistent with his character. Now that seems pretty simple and basic, but it is true. The scripture asks that will not the judge of the earth do right so that whatever God decides concerning the Jew and where he fits in to the plan of God after what he did, it's going to be consistent with the character of God which is just and righteous. Now there are three facts that are true. Number one, that the gospel is for Jews and Gentiles alike. It's always been that way. Paul said, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God and salvation to the Jew first and, 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 and then to the Gentile, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek or Gentile. The gospel is for Jew and Gentile alike. Secondly, the Old Testament is packed with promises to the Jew. It starts out with a promise to the Jew. And God encounters Abraham, makes him a covenant, and a promise that God can't back out on if he's God. So that these promises of the Old Testament are packed, it's packed full of promises for the Jew. Third, there are very few Jews who receive the gospel. I was, uh, somebody reminded me the other day of an article or informed me of an article in Time Magazine a couple of weeks ago in the religious section and asked me to read it. The article says that, that in the birthplace of Christianity, which is the Middle East, this religious writer predicts that in a matter of a few years there'll be no Christians. So that in the very birthplace of Christianity, Christianity is extinct. Strange thing, isn't it? Is that with the, in, in, in the fact that, that Jesus himself came with the gospel first to the Jews, very few Jews receive the gospel. Now that leads to two conclusions which are both wrong. One conclusion is that the gospel in the book of Romans is false or God has broken his promise. And the answer to that, those conclusions, is this. God does have a plan for the Jew. What is that plan? It's what we're going to try to figure out. Now, in the next three chapters, there are three great doctrines that we'll, be, that we'll consider. It's so important you get these. Can't put this on the pillow at night and get it by osmosis. There are three great doctrines in the next three chapters. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God, the doctrine of the justice of God, and the doctrine of the faithfulness of God. Now chapter nine deals with the sovereignty of God. It's the most disturbing chapter in the Bible. For example, Spurgeon says, if chapter nine didn't have verse 18 in it, 
I, would, I, could, I could rest easy at night. Let me show you what chapter 18 says. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Spurgeon said, if that verse wasn't in the scripture, I could rest easy at night. Chapter nine is the most disturbing passage, chapter in the Bible. Now we need to see chapter nine from the right perspective. In chapter nine, we're gonna consider the sovereignty of God. Are you hearing me? And it is, if, it, as, it is as if we were in the throne room of heaven and we're looking over the shoulder of God as he writes out his law and his will for man. And we're looking over the shoulder of God from the perspective of the throne room of heaven, of eternity. And from that perspective where God is, 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 is king and sovereign, we understand that God can do anything he wants to. If God is sovereign, it means that God can do anything he pleases and he has the right to do anything he chooses because he's absolutely sovereign. And we're seeing chapter nine from that perspective. When you look at it from that perspective, it helps you to see that, that what he's talking about in chapter nine is the sovereignty of God. He has the right to do anything he pleases. But in chapter 10, we're looking back from earth toward the justice of God and we're seeing justice done, justice. And we see that the response of the Jew is in chapter 10, that he wants to get to heaven by his works. And we see that what happens to the Jew in chapter 10 is the justice of God being accomplished. Now. Hear this carefully. If you go to Romans 9 and you read Romans 9 and you close it up and that's all you read, you're going to get an, an unbalanced concept of what this is about because all you'll see is the sovereignty of God and that's difficult for us to reconcile the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. So that you look at chapter 10 and you put the two together, if you just read chapter 10 and didn't read chapter nine, that would be confusing. And then you come to chapter 11 and you see the faithfulness of God blending the two together, blending the sovereignty of God with the justice of God in the marvelous 11th chapter. So that chapter nine is God's perspective, chapter 10 is man's perspective, and chapter 11 is the blending of the two. Are you with me to this point? What I'm trying to impress on you now is that understanding this passage that has to do with the plan of God for the Jews means that we come to it looking at it from these three perspectives, the sovereignty of God, the justice of God, and the faithfulness of God. Now let's go to chapter nine, verse six. Chapter nine, verse six. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Now what he's talking about there, of course, is that God made this promise to the Jew, made it to Abraham, he's gonna raise up his people, plenteous as the sands of the sea, glorious as the stars in the heaven. And, and they are gonna be his people, and he's chosen them out of the loin of Abraham. And, and where are they? They're not there. And, and so he said, it's not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. 
Neither are they all children because they're Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. You know what he's saying? He's saying just because you were born a Jew doesn't mean that you are ipso facto a part of the family of God. Now the Jews had a big problem with this when Jesus was on the earth. And he bumped up against that time and time again because they, they, they were saying, well, we're children of Abraham. We're, we belong to the family of God. Just because you're born a child of Hebrew parents does not ipso automatically make you a member of the family of God. That's what he's saying. I mean, the Jews ought to have known that. Ishmael was as much a son of Abraham as Isaac was. But there are not going to be any Jews who would say the Ishmaelites are members of the family of God. Just because you are a member, uh, you're a, a Jew does not make you a member of God's family. Now look at verses 14 and from there. What shall we say then? There is no justice with God? Is there? May it never be. Skip to verse 19. You will say to me, then why does he still find fault for who, is, who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel to honorable use and another for, for common use? Now, now remember, we're seeing chapter 9 in light of the sovereignty of God. And Paul is saying if a potter chooses to make a vessel that, that's, you know, that's not that hot and will just use it for common use, and then he has a right to do it. And, and if he chooses to make a vessel that's fit for the palace, he'll, he'll do that. It's up to God. I mean, that's his right to do that. And he deals with something that is vital in the concept of the sovereignty of God, and that has to do with election. Now, I want the first person who understands election to stand up and tell us about it, you know. I mean, we're dealing with stuff that, that outruns the ability of most of us to communicate, even understand. Um, I don't know whether you've been watching or not in these Dallas uh, stations, but Texas is involved in a heated gubernatorial race. And the fur's flying down there. This uh, Brother Williams, who uh, was born with his foot in his mouth, you know, and uh, uh, how he got in this world with it, you know, and, and he's running against this lady, Ann Richards, and they're battling it out. And um, sometime this fall, we'll, they'll go, the Texans will go to the, to the uh, uh, polls, and they'll elect a governor. And when they elect a governor, be it female or male, be it Clayton Williams or Ann Richards, you know, when it's all said and done, 
nobody's going to look at the guys voted for Williams or the guy that voted for Ann Richards and say, well, you're a worthless human being on the face of the earth. How could you elect somebody like that? Because that's the prerogative and the right of every citizen. We don't have any, we don't have any problem with that. We have a problem with the fact that don't, people that don't vote. Now, why should we have a problem with the fact that God exercises election? He's never done anything wrong yet. Now the rub comes in when we get all confused with the fact that he elects some to be lost and he, he, it seems like he elects some to be lost and some to be saved. No, it doesn't, it, not that at all. Now let me just read you from uh, McGarman's commentary on this. He says, these verses suggest the rest of Paul's answer to the problem of Israel's status and destiny. Observe the following, number one. The unbelieving Jews are vessels of wrath whom God has endured with much patience. Chapter 9, verse 22, circle it. Romans 9.30 to 10.21 explains this reasoning its climax, this, reaching its climax in the quotation of Isaiah 65-2 in the final verse, look at that, in the final verse of chapter 9. Um, all day long of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people, chapter 10, verse 21, circle that. A passage like this shows that Paul never intended his metaphor of the potter to deny man's responsibility before God. One does not extend pleading hands to a pot. Only Jack McGarman, if you ever knew him, could say something like that. I mean, he's absolutely hilarious, colorful. Now what he's saying is this, that that don't get confused when you get into the matter of the sovereign election because that does not mean that God elects totally independent of man's responsibility. He said, all day long, I've held my hands out to a disobedient people so that the offer is there to, to the Jew, to all men, to reject or receive, you see. All right, second, he says, through the revelation of his wrath and power in his dealings with the unbelieving Jew, God intends to make known the riches of his glory, 923, so that he overrules the disobedience of Israel and calls into being vessels of mercy, including Gentiles as well as Jews, 924. Romans 11, 1 through 32 explains this, reaching its climax in verse 32, God has consigned all men to disobedience that he may have mercy upon all. Once again, the vessels God, Paul, described in chapter 11 were capable of responding to God's call. Now listen carefully. This gets a little long, but here it is. In Romans 9, 6 through 13, Paul taught that not all belong to Israel who are descended from Israel. There is an Israel within Israel. Now, you may want to respond to me tonight. We're kind of all home folks here. 
If there is an Israel within Israel, what is the Israel within the Israel? What? The church. The believing body of Christ is the Israel within the Israel. Now, are you with me at this point? All right, notice. He says, they are the children of promise, verses chapter 9 through 18. The children of the promise that was to Abraham is the Israel within the Israel. I call it the new Israel. That's us who are believers. In Romans 9, 19 through 29, he taught that not all who are called to become vessels of mercy belong to physical Israel. Gentiles are included also. There is an Israel beyond Israel. They are vessels of mercy whom God has before, who God has, uh, has prepared beforehand for His glory. So there is an Israel within Israel, and there is an Israel beyond Israel, and that is made up of those He's called beforehand, Jew and Gentile, to make up the vessels of His glory. Chapter 9. And it ends with verse 30, really, look at verse 30 of chapter 9. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness? Even the righteousness which is by faith, the Gentiles return, they attained the righteousness of God because the righteousness of God is attained by faith. And the Jews missed it because they sought righteousness by the law. The next verse. You say what I'm saying? You follow me? Either you don't or you're in a coma. I mean, I see, I see absolutely zero response. Well, I want to press on anyway. Chapter 10, the justice of God. Now we have the sovereignty of God choosing His own and the justice of God. Chapter 10, verse 1 through 3, look at it. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, these are the Jews, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness, God's righteousness is the grace plan. God's righteousness is the grace plan where a man is justified by faith. Not knowing, that word knowing, it means knowing by experience, not experiencing God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, which is righteousness by works. Notice what happens. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Now remember this that whenever God made a promise to the Jew, He made that promise to the Jew on the basis of their response to Him. And when man devised his own plan in disobedience to God, he's not a child of the promise. All right, look at verses 6 and 7. But the righteousness based on faith speaks thus. Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, 
that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. Notice what he's saying. He's saying that this, this opportunity, this word was within reach of every Jew. The word of faith which we preach, he said. Look at verse 11. For the scripture says, who believes in him shall not be disappointed. This is the word of faith we preach and it's within the grasp of every, every person, every Jew that is the word of faith. And whoever believes in him will not be cast out, will not be disappointed. But look at verse 16, the, 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 uh, the summation of all of it. It says, however, they did not all hear the glad tidings for Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. He said, quoting Isaiah, they didn't believe our report. Now, if God is just, and he is, then is he going to include them in his, into his family if they reject the word of faith which was within their grasp? Now, does that mean that I ignore them? No, it doesn't mean that I ignore them. God doesn't. He said, it for Israel, he says, verse 21, all the day long I stretched out my hands to disobedient and obstinate people. Now chapter 11, God is saying that I'm going to be faithful to Jew and Gentile. I want to show you something in verse 11, chapter 11. He says, I say then, did they not stumble they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? That is, the Jew didn't stumble so that he could fall and never be a part of God's family. May it never be. By their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. What a strange verse. Paul is saying that the Jew didn't stumble so that he would fall out of God's plan. When he stumbled, God grafted in the Gentile so that the Jew would be motivated to be saved. So that the Jew would look on what the Gentile has and say, I want a part of that. Look at verse 14. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save, watch, some of them. Now does that say that every Jew is going to be saved? He's saying, no, he didn't say that. He's saying, I am working all of this out. I'm bringing in the Gentiles into this family tree so that the Jews would see that and want to be a part of that, of that and some of them and some of them will be saved. Now what's the bottom line to all of this? Bottom line is verse 33. 
Oh, the depths and the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable are His ways. I mean, how do you figure it out? You can't. It's beyond figuring out. Now, I see two truths to sum all of this up. The first is this, that our past and our present are not a model of our future. How we have been is not how we will be. Now, so many of us make the mistake that, that you know, that history repeats itself and it's, always going to be, it's not always going to be like this. And regardless of whether we're Jew or Gentile, there is something different that lies beyond this. It's not always going to be like this. Secondly, our outlook on life is not determined by circumstances, but by focus. Now, you say, how do you get that? Well, the circumstances that, that you read in chapter 9 and chapter 10 and chapter 11, when you read that and get caught up in the confusion of that, it seems like that God, you know, is this just arbitrarily picks people out and sends some to hell. And, and, and it seems like to the Jews, it seems that he's unjust because he didn't kept his, hadn't kept his promise that he made to Abraham. And, and, and all of this gets so confusing. But it's not the circumstances that determine, it's our focus. And our focus is on a God who is just, righteous, and faithful. That's where we focus. Now, when you focus on a God like that, you know that however it turns out, it's going to be just right. And we can leave matters up, we can leave business up to Him, He'll take care of it. He hadn't made a, he hadn't made a mistake yet. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful that Your Word is so profound that human mind cannot fathom it. Your ways are so unsearchable that man cannot understand them. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your ways and thoughts higher than ours. Help us to place our focus tonight in faith on the God who is righteous, just, perfect. You're the only one who is that way. Forgive us of our sin pray in Jesus' name. They're free invitations. If you feel a tug in your heart to be saved, you know that God has chosen you. And He's calling you. All day long He holds out His hands to you. Perhaps you need to come tonight for the rededication of your life or maybe to join the church. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.